forward. Forward. Left. Find the door. There are over 4 million working-aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Toward Success the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Welcome back to Vision Toward Success. In today's program, we will be interviewing Anne Cipetta, a former trauma counselor with VA and author. With Anne's help and guidance, we will learn more about trauma and how vision loss can affect mental health. And with that, I'll hand it over to our interviewer, Chantel Zuzi. Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, my name is Chantal Zuzi, and I am going to be your interviewer today. It's really a privilege meeting you. Hi, Chantal. Pleasure being here. Um, I'm excited, and I uh, hope we have a lot of fun today. <laughs> Can you tell us about yourself, like where you grew up and where you went to school? Yes, I am from New York. I'm Grew up in a little town called Mamaroneck, and uh, a lot of people find it really hard to pronounce it, but um, it's in the lower Hudson Valley in Westchester County. It's a little seaside town. I was uh, born in uh, 1964, so um, I went to school. First, I went to a Catholic school for a little while. Then uh, my parents divorced and we moved. So I went to public school and that was like the best thing that ever happened to me. I loved public school when I totally did not like Catholic school. And so I went to public school in New York until uh, middle school. And, and then I did my freshman year um, of high school in New York. Then my mother remarried and we moved out to Northern California in near San Jose uh, in, a, in a town called Campbell. And I started my started tenth grade uh, in public school in California, and you want to talk about culture shock. I <laughs> I had uh, had to do a lot of adjusting, um, and back then I had low vision, but I was not yet legally blind, so I wore very thick glasses, and but I I had all of the beginning signs of retinitis pigmentosa, so couldn't see at night, bumped into things. Um, had no depth perception, and I actually never drove a car. Even though I took driver's ed in school in California, I almost made us crash more than once. And then after that, I decided I don't think I should be driving. So I, you know, in school, I gravitated towards music and um, English and the arts. I was always very much in, you know, interested in um, art classes. I would cut class um, for math and history, but I was always there for English and art. I, uh, I'm the youngest of three girls, and one sister lives back in New York with me because um, I moved back to New York um, in my 20s from California. And the other sister who followed us out originally, she stayed, and now she's a teacher in Northern California. So, you know, my dad did remarry, and I have a half-sister who lives in um in Mamaroneck. Uh been married for thirty years. Uh, my husband is a Navy veteran and he currently works as a customs officer. And how how was it growing up with family members? As you mentioned, you have sisters and how was it like? 
I was the youngest and my two sisters were like a lot older than me, like six and eight years older than me. So I, I was always the baby. <laughs> kind of sometimes I felt like I was, I was the only child because my sisters are so much older and doing things so far ahead of me that I always felt like, oh, I'm doing this, you know, on my own. I was very independent, but it was also kind of isolating as well. Speaking of school, right? What kind of assistive technology did you use in school? Back then, you know, in the early 1970s, uh, there wasn't really anything for me to use. I mean, when I started wearing very thick glasses, I was wearing them starting in kindergarten. And they were so thick and so heavy. And they were, they were made out of glass back then, not plastic. So they were always like make marks in my nose or behind my ears. I would get rubbed raw. So I always wanted to take them off <laughs> because they were not comfortable. And um, even though they made me see better, they never really made me see clearly. You know, I remember as a kid, if we were doing something like jumping rope or I was doing something, an activity of some kind, I would uh, have to take off my glasses and put them in a safe place and then go and do what the other kids were doing. But that also meant I couldn't see well. Everything was blurry. But, so I had to make choices back then, whether I wanted to risk my glasses being broken by doing what I was doing or put them away and not being able to see. And, you know, sometimes that resulted in me getting hurt or falling or whatever. I felt that my vision loss at the time was, was an extremely limiting thing for me. And uh, many times it was as a kid. It wasn't until later that I started getting choices. So like when I would read in school, when I was young, I always had the book like this <laughs> up against my face because there was no large print back then. You know, there was no, um, they never identified me as a child who had a vision impairment. So that kind of is really what followed me through uh, most of my early education, like at, you know, elementary school and leading into middle school. Um, and in middle school, there were kinds of things that, you know, I couldn't take part in, you know, towards sports and stuff um, because I couldn't track the ball. Or a couple of times uh, I remember playing basketball and the ball hit me in the face and my glasses broke. So that was the end of that. And it wasn't until I was in high school that uh, like large print books and textbooks became a little more readable and there was some magnification tools that I could use. And I, I sometimes I did use uh, magnifiers and stuff, um, especially like in art. If uh, my art teachers were very good at helping me adapt whatever I needed to do art, whether it was painting or uh, line drawings or things like that. But the, you know, I, I didn't really have anything adaptive labeled as that growing up. It was kind of like, just figure it out on your own. How long did it take for you to adapt once you lost your vision? You know, I think I was adapting all along from the time I started getting glasses. But I think sometimes I got like a, got to rest about it. You know, like my, my vision would get worse and then it would kind of get stable. Then it would get worse and then it would get stable. And I had a long period of time where it was the same. And I'm, I'm really very glad about that. You know, it really helped me just be a person, you know, and not have to worry about my vision so much. And that was from the time I was like around 12. And then in middle school, it was kind of the same. Then it got a little worse. And then it kind of stayed the same until I was out of high school. So that was, that was a good thing because I didn't have to worry about it. But I was just trying to just be a teenager and try to get a job and go to school and do all the regular normal things my friends were doing um, without having the burden of saying, oh, well, I don't know if I could do that because I can't see. So the adapting came in stages for me. And up until a few years ago, um, when my vision finally got to the point where I really don't rely on it anymore, that's when I think the adapting part became, you know, less of a priority. And did you know anyone who was blind or visually impaired in your community? There was one other girl when we were still living, when my parents were still married, 
and she had low vision as well. And she wore really thick glasses and we would both, you know, have our nose in the books, you know, kind of. And I actually did, uh, so funny, I did contact her again, you know, after uh, I got married and had kids and we reconnected for a little while. And she was still having vision problems just like me. Um, but then we lost touch, you know, when I was in my 20s. So I don't really know anybody. I mean, it was just, I was the only one. Just that's what it felt like. And did you work during your college days? And how was it finding a job while being visually impaired? Oh, I didn't go to college until I was older. But, um, and I had, already, I had stopped working when I first got diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa when I was 28. So I was working until I was 28. And then I stopped working and had my children. And then when I wanted to go back to school, I was already, you know, visually impaired, legally blind, all that stuff. It's not easy to find a job when you have a disability. And I remember so many interviews that as soon as they saw me walk in with my white cane, the interview was over before it even started. And I knew just by the way they treated me. And that was just so disheartening. But I didn't give up. <laughs> so you just can't give up because, you know, a door closes, another one opens. And that's what it's been like for my whole life. And what did you major in college and why? I became a family therapist. So I received my master's in marriage and family therapy. And I chose that because I didn't want to to be a social worker necessarily. And I didn't want to be a psychologist either. And the reason why I didn't want to become a psychologist, because I was very fearful of the, the math requirements to become a psychologist. I wanted to be in the room with people. I wanted to help heal people. And that's why I thought the family therapy was the best fit for me. Wow. And how has it been for you to work as a trauma counselor for combat veterans and their families? But, uh, the overall experience has been extremely gratifying, but it's also, it was also extremely difficult. Took a lot out of me personally. There's a lot of self-care you have to be invested in when you hear trauma day in and day out, and especially trauma from war, because there's a lot of there are a lot of facets of it that are, are violent and bloody and just dehumanizing. And you have to be ready to be able to be a vessel for that. It's a gift you give to somebody to be a therapist. How has working with people who have experienced different circumstances has really changed your view of the world? In a lot of ways, I... Uh, because I've heard so much trauma when I choose to be involved in like the news and know what's going on in the world. I'm very careful about what I do watch and what I do read because I don't want to be overwhelmed like I was when I was a trauma counselor. So I want to concentrate more on the good things. I want to make every day count. I want to make my life matter. I want to stay connected with people more. And that's why I've really focused on my writing and my poetry and uh, getting out there and making presentations and, and just being with people. Well, it's really challenging the work that you do, but what kind of self-care do you provide for yourself? Oh, I love to read. I love to play with my dogs. <laughs> so I have a guide dog and a pet dog and you know, I get really excited about that new poem that I have in my head. I want to write it down. I call, I call my sister and we talk or I send an email to a friend. It's important that I stay connected with my friends and family because they're my support and I get a lot of um, energy from them. I also, I like to cook and uh, I like, I do meditate. I do make sure I take at least 20 minutes out of every day and just sit with myself and breathe and clear my head. And I find that that is probably the most helpful thing, especially when I'm feeling concerned about something, you know, so very simple things, but things that, um, that help my mind kind of relax. Do you work in that field currently? I, uh, I retired as a trauma counselor in 2019. 
And of course, then COVID hit. Like everybody else, I was kind of lost, you know, <laughs> there was a big pause in the world. And, I, you know, I had that time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. I decided that I'm going to invest in being what I've always wanted to be, which is a writer. I've independently published four books, but now I want to step it up. And um, I'm currently looking for an agent to find places where I can uh, publish my work. I also, I do presentations on a number of different things and I was doing them up until COVID and now that's picking up again. So, you know, I, I was going to the public library and getting involved in, they have poetry slams and stuff like that. They paused them. So now that stuff is starting to pick up again. So I'm really excited. I'm, you know, I want to get back into performing my poetry and getting out in the community and visiting those kids at school and telling them about what it's like being blind. And I think that's what I want to do. I'm just, I just want to be uh, who I am and stay connected and, and have fun. Okay. So why, why writing? Why are you so passionate about writing? Do you mind telling us? Oh yeah. I, I've always loved to write and it started in, I think, middle school and my English teacher really liked, uh, like my poetry and everything. And I, you know, it's always been something in the background for me. I, when I was employed before I started losing my vision, before I was, became legally blind, I was a designer of acrylic furniture and it was a very creative thing for me. So the creativity, it's always been a priority for me. And when I lost my vision, all my ability to do those things kind of, well, they became very frustrating and very difficult for me. So I put a lot of that, those visual arts away. And then one day I started writing poetry and writing out how I felt about losing my vision. Those poems um, became the first poems that I got published. And uh, when I went into college, I, I took a lot of uh, literature classes and I was very good. And a lot of my professors took me under their wing and helped me. And it just became part of the new way I create. So I, I, you know, I had to say goodbye to the visual arts, but I had the, um, the literary arts to compensate for that. This is a fun part. Really, I wanted to learn more about your books, especially that I've read some, and I would like to know <laughs> what is your favorite book in all the books that you've written and why? It was probably be the follow your dog book because i talk most i talk very frankly about my disability in that book and and i think that's really important and that was really difficult for me to be that candid in that way so that to me was like the hardest book to write and i think that's why my it's my favorite Speaking about um, the effects of COVID-19, I know the whole world was affected by this virus. And um, as you mentioned, um, it's also affected you. Uh, would you mind elaborating a little bit about how COVID affected your work? Well, my husband, since he works um, at an airport, I was worried about him a lot, like what he was being exposed to. I, I had by by that time i had stopped working so i was at home and i didn't feel as as worried for myself as i felt for him um it was really hard not being able to see anybody for a long time you know but i didn't i don't think i actually had it any more or less difficult than anybody else i learned that you are also an advocate for people with blindness and visual impairment how has that been for you are you doing that advocacy right now or was that affected by COVID as well? That was very much affected by COVID. I was going into elementary schools and presenting a program called Building Bridges for kindergarten and first graders. And I haven't been back since. <laughs> so I think we did one in, um, it was in February, right before. And I haven't been doing one since, but they're going to be picking back up this year. And so disability awareness presentations with kindergarten and first graders are awesome. <laughs> they are, they are great. The questions they ask are wonderful. 
they don't have that fear of asking the wrong question like adults do. So they ask any question at all. And that's wonderful because, you know, you want them to ask questions. You want them to ask, you know, what's it like for this or what's it like for that? So those things I'll be doing. I try to advocate when, you know, when asked in our, our local blindness group, or sometimes I I present to an agency here called Visions, and they have a uh, a training center in Rockland County. Sometimes I go there and I make presentations about, you know, what what it's like to be a writer who's blind or how I got my degree and what obstacles or things helped me get it. And how accessible is the industry that you work in? Like writing and also looking in the past, right? While working as a therapist. When I was a therapist, we had a, a licensing test, right? Uh, you know, for to get your marriage and family therapy license to practice in New York. And the first test that I tried to take um, right after I got my internship with the veterans, it wasn't accessible. And I had to fight for that. And it took three years for me to fight with New York State to make it the test accessible in the format that I was requesting. But since then, it's totally accessible now. Uh, so I wasted three years of letters and legal assistance. And yeah, so that was really disheartening. It was ridiculous, but that's what happens sometimes. And the writing world, well, you know, some things are accessible and, you know, in terms of, you know, text to speech technology and stuff. And some things still are not. And and I think the choices that you have as an assistive technology user, we have so many more choices now and so many different ways to accomplish a task. And um, that's because technology keeps advancing and we keep making sure that we tell them, well, you want to make something new, you have to make it built in with accessibility. And that kind of uh, design thought um, is going to be leading the future. So I'm really happy about that. And are there other people with disabilities at your workforce right now? I still keep in touch with the disability community, of course, because I'm an advocate and that's always something that I'll do. I do have um, a good friend who's the executive director of an independent living center and uh, she does employ people with disabilities and in her center. And that's a, one of the things that independent living centers do as a general rule is they, they hire, when they can, they hire people with disabilities to perform the jobs that they need and the tasks that they need. So yeah, we, uh, in the broad sense of, do I know other people with disabilities, you know, who are employed in, in similar roles? Yes. I, uh, but when I was working for the readjustment program for the VA, I was the only blind counselor among like 3,000 people. So I do think that in, in some sectors, especially in federal federal service sectors or civil service, I think people with disabilities are vastly underrepresented as employees. How did you overcome your obstacles as a blind or visually impaired person and what advice do you have for the listeners who may or may not have a disability today? Hmm. You know, when you asked me that question, I thought about the first time I, I used a white cane and the instructor came in my home and she, she handed me this, this cane that was kind of like a golf club. And, um, I was still in denial over my blindness, you know, it's still very, still very raw with me, you know, I didn't want to admit I was blind and want to have to use a cane, but oh boy, did I fall a lot and bang into things. And it's, so she gave me this white cane and I'm like, I, I really don't know. And, um, so, she, you know, she taught me how to, you know, to do some things in the house and how to get my rhythm going with my cane and everything. And we went outside and, you know, I little by little, I learned how to use my cane and, uh, I, th I think that was, that was the moment where I realized, you know, you're blind, you know, and you've got, you've got to figure this out. You've got to accept it, you know, and you've got to do whatever you need to do to be able to 
you know, to help yourself do what you need to do in life. And that, and that was really, uh, uh, was really tough. And I understand when other people say, I didn't want to use my cane. I was, you know, cane resistant. And anybody listening now, I understand that I went through that too. But there's also this rainbow effect. At least that's what I call it. You start on one end and you, you walk that rainbow to the other side and you come out of it and you say, I am so glad that I stuck with it. I am so satisfied with my ability to be able to be independent and, and mobile on my own and be safe on my own and not fall down holes or trip over things or, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, so that white cane is, is your independence. And if you choose to get a guide dog after that, that's even, even better. <laughs> but, you know, you have to start somewhere. You have to, you know, you, you've got to allow yourself to heal the loss and move on. And that's the way you gain independence through any disability. It doesn't matter whether you lose your vision or whether you're living in a wheelchair after amputation. You've got to allow yourself to heal and you've got to be able to give yourself a chance to live again. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story with us today. It was an honor speaking with you. Hello and welcome back to Vision Toward Success. I'm Elena Regan, and in today's episode, we interviewed Anne Cipetta, a former trauma counselor with the VA and published author and poet. My colleague Katie and I were able to catch up with Anne after the interview to delve deeper into the emotional side of blindness and how vision loss can affect a person's mental health. Vision loss is a journey that many individuals have to adapt to. Whether it be as a child, adult, or a senior, losing vision at any age is difficult. In Anne's case, she was living with an eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa. This is a genetic condition that causes progressive vision loss. The symptoms usually first occur in childhood and progress to eventual blindness. This meant for years, Anne was dealing with vision difficulties that eye doctors and teachers could not explain and this presented a problem for her at school. Anne started her education in Catholic school, where they did not understand her needs. She eventually transferred to public school, which she emphasized was a game changer for her. I went to parochial school, and it was it was not a good experience for me. Um, it, you know, back in the early 70s, it was all nuns, okay? And um, they were very strict, and I had many things going against me. First, I was left-handed, and before I had my glasses, I I kept I couldn't. They thought I was stupid because I couldn't do the vocabulary and I couldn't see the board. So every time they would ask me how to spell a word, I wouldn't know. And they told my parents that I was, I hate this word, an imbecile. You know, your daughter is dumb. Yeah. And then my my dad actually told them that, you know, when she reads a book, do you, you know, she reads really close like this. And they go, we don't allow her to do that. That'll ruin her vision. And so that's, that's when my dad said, yeah, I think she needs to go and see, you know, the uh, eye doctor. And that's when they diagnosed me. And I, I got those really thick glasses in the second half of kindergarten. And that was just like, I put them on, I could see the board. And, and then I started reading and, and, and I ended up accelerating and they realized that I wasn't stupid. Yeah, and then first grade was kind of the same thing, but a little different because they didn't want to put me up in the front row. They because my last name was began with an R. They wanted to sit, sit me in the back, and my parents had to come in and fight to get me put in the front row so I could see the board. So it was like that. And then when I got to public school in third grade, it was so different. I got an English teacher who wrote with his left hand and told me to write any way I want. I mean, it was amazing to me. I mean, I would never learn these things in parochial school. Oftentimes, when children begin to lose their vision at a young age, the adults in their lives, like teachers, 
parents, and even eye doctors can think they're faking it for attention. Teachers can think we have cognitive disabilities and don't even give thought to vision impairment. Having adults discount a child's reality can be detrimental to their mental health. The child can believe that addressing their concerns will not help, and that the adults in their lives do not care for them. Dealing with the trauma of vision loss as a child is difficult even with a support system, but when that support system doesn't even believe the child's losing vision, the trauma is even further amplified. Many people assume that vision loss is not a trauma if you knew it was coming. With many conditions like Anne's, people know they'll eventually lose a majority of their vision. People generally understand that if you were suddenly blinded in an accident, that that would be traumatic, but somehow do not see that the gradual loss of vision is a trauma as well. I like to think of it like a company who is losing money. Whether that company loses it all at once or in little chunks over the years, the financial struggles are still present in both scenarios. The same is said for vision loss and its related trauma. The trauma of vision loss is valid and can be very hard to deal with. And because of that, we asked Anne if the emotional trauma she faced because of losing her vision helped her connect to the vets she was counseling. Yeah, I think that that helped me have a softer feeling for people who were going through loss of whatever. Yeah, it helped me connect with them more. It did. As we have mentioned, vision loss is difficult to adapt to. And because of Anne's background as a trauma counselor, she decided to give some advice to those who are going through vision loss or other challenging situations. Just my first thought is, is to never give up hope. And uh, if someone says, no, you can't do that, find another way. <laughs> um, don't, don't let somebody else, you know, take your dreams away. Um, or take away that feeling of I can, I can do this. I just have to figure it out. You know, find a find a different way, and to and to try to um, find support for your loss and for your grieving process because it is it's, you're grieving through a significant loss. And if you can if you can find an individual therapist or you can find a group of people who are going through similar things, that's really, um, I would say, is, is, is probably a pivotal key for how well you adjust um, from that point to the future. Uh, I didn't have my therapist until much later, and uh, I wish I would have had the therapist right at the beginning. It probably would have helped me, you know, move through the transition even more softly, you know, <laughs> without, without as much uh, emotional duress. Find help, ask for help, um, and don't ever give up hope. Yeah. And I think it can be tricky um, to to find a therapist that that can assist you through that. I've been looking for such a therapist for years, and I haven't found one. I've found folks that specialize in, in chronic pain and things like that. But to find somebody that can assist with, with this type of of feeling that we go through, it's it's tough. Yeah, you know, I almost want to say you, you know, the therapist has to have, you know, some personal insight into that kind of thing. For I mean, you know, there there is transference and stuff that goes on with the therapist, but I think I think if they if they have some a deeper understanding, I think that'd be very helpful. But you're right, finding the right therapist is tough. Another idea that, that kind of goes on that wavelength, you know, this idea of being being a guide dog user, you know, going through the O&M training, the cane and that sort of thing. I mean, the whole the whole idea of guide dogs came through, you know, assisting veterans coming back from war that were blinded in war. And um, so 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 that's kind of a shared experience. I, I don't know if you know a lot of folks who have gone through that process and ended up really going through the transition and and coping with blindness as a result 
Is that is that something that you've experienced and networked with other people? Oh, you mean with veterans? Yes, with with veterans that I'd say particularly have dealt with the blindness issue. Um, I know that you you've been an active member in communities like that. Have you have you come across folks like that? You know, it's it's it's. I find this really interesting. I worked at the my vet center program for eight and a half years, and I only met one veteran who was visually impaired. Because the way the VA handles blindness uh, for veterans is they give them specialized programs and they go through specialized training through different VA hospitals that are set up for it. So my particular VA and VA hospital, while they had a, um, um, a vision department, you know, for low vision or vision loss for veterans, you know, with prosthetics and all of that, I would never really counseled any veterans that had vision loss because they were handled in a very, uh, they were handled in a, in a department of all their own. And they had social workers there and therapists and all the mental health people within that. So uh, it wasn't until I started volunteering on a committee for blinded guide dog handlers that I met other um, guide dog handlers who were veterans um, and were either blinded through their service or blinded, you know, after their service. But that never happened because I worked at the VA. That happened because I was a guide dog user. (laughs) Oftentimes, blind people are grouped into special schools or institutions specifically for the blind and visually impaired. These institutions can certainly help blind people learn how to live, learn, and have a community. But they can also give sighted people a notion that blind people cannot support themselves and that they are vastly different from other people. This, of course, is not true, and blind and visually impaired people are successful in all different types of schools and programs, and we are just like our sighted peers. For those who do not go to a school for the blind, it can be very isolating. Most of these students have never met another blind person, and because of that fact, it can be hard to navigate social situations at school. As a community, we need more places to come together and share experiences, stories, and advice. The problem is the platforms for us to use are not widely known of. Our little council here in Westchester, we try to do as much outreach as we can. And, you know, once in a while we'll we'll gain one, you know, one one or two people will come into our group and come to a meeting and go, you know, I never knew you existed and I've been living here for 28 years. <laughs> and I think we should do more of that. Uh, you know, so we, you know, we try to try to be as social as possible. Is, you know, we always end up learning from each other or being inspired by one another or being there to just listen to each other. And that's really, that's really important to, you know, to just manage your disability. Having an outlet to discuss problems and issues that we face as blind people is important because we deal with ableism and oppression on a daily basis. Ableism is the discrimination against someone with a disability based on the theory that people without disabilities are superior. Issues around ableism have been going on since the beginning of human civilization, but it has only recently been regarded by society as an issue. Like many other minorities, we as disabled people have to deal with microaggressions. A microaggression is a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of subtle or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. An example of this could be when people ask a person's companion a question instead of the disabled person, or when people ask a person with a white cane if they should be out on the streets alone. In many of these situations, people do not realize they are doing something inappropriate or offensive. They just don't understand. And I think of microaggressions as like, like I know it when I hear it, but I don't know if I can really express what it is or give give a concrete example but I know from the way my stomach tightens and the way I feel uncomfortable that that probably was a microaggression you know and and you know and I, I we talk about this in our state affiliate like you know especially when you're at hotels or you're in public you know when it's happening but you may not as a person who is you know hearing this 
mate, was that an insult or was that a, you know, whatever, you know, we're not prepared to respond to it because we're so, I guess we're so shocked or put, put, put out by what you just heard. You know, you're processing this, you know, did they just really, you know, put me down in a way, you know, like go help the blind lady. Well, you know, I really don't like being called a blind lady. I have a name, you know, and sometimes I'll say that, like, my name is Anne, you know, <laughs> and then, and then, you know, that'll, that'll like stop everybody in their tracks, like a, like a, like a bubble of uh, molasses. They're like, I don't hear anything from them for like a couple of seconds. And I know they're probably going, oh my God, what do I say? You know, whatever. But, um, you know, so when it happens, it's really uncomfortable for everybody. And people don't really know that they're doing it, I think. It is tiring to have to face these microaggressions on a daily basis and educate the world about blindness. We just want to be treated like people. Well, I know some people that I've talked to in my particular blindness group, they talk about how they, they're tired of being, having the, the burden of educating people. And I agree with that. It just happened to me the other day in the doctor's office. Um, it was a new doctor's office, never been there. So I was like, could you just, you know, orient me a little bit? And she says, well, you know, I'll take you to the, you know, the door to the back. And I didn't have my dog and I just had my cane. And I said, okay. Um, she didn't know what to do. I said, well, I'll take your right arm if that's okay. And, oh, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know how much of that will actually change. And that's not a microaggression at all. That's just ignorance. Yes, that's just, yeah, it's just, they just don't know what to do. They're not, you know, and then you go into some places and they know exactly what to do, you know, and it's like so nice. You relax, right? The the whole, that whole hypervigilance piece just goes down to nothing and you can finally relax and just be a person. One thing that comes to mind when I'm out in public is, is somebody grabbing my cane or my dog's harness and trying to pull me in a certain direction without saying anything. Can you imagine how it would feel if you were just traveling, minding your own business, and a stranger grabbed your personal property without asking and started dragging you in a random direction? I bet it wouldn't be pleasant. This is how we as disabled people feel when you grab our service animal or mobility tool. These tools are a part of our personal bubble, and just as you wouldn't like somebody grabbing your body without asking, we don't want you grabbing our tools, which are extensions of our bodies. Having to educate the public about these facts daily can lead to burnout, and we asked Anne if she had any advice for those struggling to balance the educator role in their lives. I didn't even know I was being an advocate until somebody pointed it out to me. I mean, I just, I was just like, you know, speaking up and just, you know, sticking up for myself, you know, or sticking up for somebody else. I think that was one of the things that I was doing first. I was advocating for other people, not necessarily myself. And sometimes sticking up for myself is actually harder than, than advocating for someone else. But I've learned to, you know, to kind of, even that out especially you know because when you go into like a school and you're talking about you know what blindness is and you know how it can feel sometimes and stuff you're, you're leveling that out you know you're you're potentially creating advocates in those little minds get them when they're young because <laughs> that's how that's how they're made. but if you're an older person you know and and you've had vision all your life and then you suddenly lose it or you have macular degeneration and, and, and stuff and you've had to give up your driving and all that. I, you know, that's when I think there's got to be more support for somebody. I think they need to kind of learn from somebody else who's already been doing that. And, and, you know, a lot of that is just, it takes time, um, for someone to build up that, that level of confidence to be able to advocate for themselves, especially when they haven't necessarily had to until, a certain point in their lives. And in terms of burnout, I think you just got to, you know, choose your battles, right? I mean, we, we tend to do that in life anyway. Is it really worth it or not? And why? And we, you know, we have to be able to balance that in our lives. 
along with being advocates and educators to those who are not visually impaired, we also meet and support those who have had a recent vision loss. A sudden loss of vision can be difficult to adapt to and can be hard to accept emotionally. As someone involved in the mental health profession, Anne emphasized her disappointment in the disregard for mental health support during blindness rehabilitation. Yeah, I could, I could go, I could go a whole nother hour about how there's not enough mental health support for people with vision loss right here, just in Westchester County. It's just, um, I mean, we've had a whole um, shift in what what service means for blind and visually impaired people in Westchester. It's just, it's it's politics, it's money, it's you know, oy, oy, oy. <laughs> I mean, but the bottom line is. There are people that are not getting served and are falling through the cracks and especially older adults, you know, and then we have all of this, supposedly we have these funds that are being held up um, in Albany for, you know, ALP and everything and why that isn't happening. And, um, and then we hear about people, older adults in nursing homes who suddenly, you know, have macular degeneration issues and can't even use a telephone and they're not being served, you know, because they're in nursing homes and, we do what we can, when we can, as advocates, and we try to help one person at a time. And oh, that's the best you can do. One of the big reasons for the lack of mental health resources for those who are blind is the ignorance around intersectionality. This is an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities contribute to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Bodies who serve the blind are focused on the blind part of a person's life, when in reality, blindness is just a small part of who we are and what is going on. In just focusing on the blindness, the connection between vision loss and mental health can be lost. I agree with you. I I do. And I'm not sure whether it's because the programs themselves aren't aren't including or being inclusive enough to cross over um, and include a, you know a mental health component or not depending on the program you know I don't know what the answer is but I I do know that I you know I guess it depends state by state and program by program but I know uh, when I was going through my own rehabilitation process getting a counselor to address my grief wasn't provided at first. It wasn't until later. Um, actually, what happened was I had some postpartum depression and um, it was the uh, the OBGYN that uh, she gave me that screening. You give all mothers after having a child and she's like, you know, you, you need some help, you know. And then that's that was when I finally got a therapist and it ended up being, you know, unresolved um, grief and loss over my vision. Um, so it was, it, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> so I came about the, the mental health support for my vision loss because of something else. And, and the, the other thing is the confusing thing. When someone needs mental health assistance, they may be feeling so helpless or, or so confused or so numb that they don't, they're not able to make decisions for themselves. Like, this, you know, so, I mean, literally putting the phone in their hand to talk to somebody on the other end is what you might have to do. And I don't think that that personal assistance is there anymore. They, they need somebody to um, guide them through it. And I think that's what we're missing. We are missing the emotional support for those going through vision loss. As we've discussed, vision loss is like any other type of loss. And for those struggling to deal with that change, the mental health supports need to be there for them. This will not change if the groups meant to help the blind keep disregarding mental health. This is not helped by the stigmatization of mental health disorders, but the effort has to be made in order for some to wholly complete the rehabilitation process. I'd like to thank Anne for sharing her insights on the mental health field and its connection to blindness. If you want to read some of Anne's body of work, you can find more information at her website, www.annechapetta.com 
That is A-N-N-C-H-I-P-E-T-T-A dot com. And now here are some blindness tips on how to successfully find employment from Ann Chapetta. My advice on that would be, I mean, you've got to go in with your confidence up and that you don't care if they have that sour look on their face. They can go do whatever they want with that. But you're going to give your best just like everybody else. Don't let anybody intimidate you out of that because that's just not right. And it also, you know, hey, I didn't see that ugly face, so I wouldn't have known any different. You know, that's an advantage, not, not a disadvantage in that way. So also, you know, I think as a person with a disability, unfortunately, the flip side of that is you may need to add an additional six months to your internship during a program, especially for your master's program, because you are going to be turned away. And that's just an unfortunate, crappy thing that happens. People, you know, just, you know, they discriminate. It happens less, but it still happens. Discrimination is a part of the world we live in. It's unfortunate, but it's a fact. All you can do is be confident, get your education, and keep trying. Thanks for listening, and tune in in two weeks for the next intriguing story on Vision Towards Success. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Towards Success. This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast Team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts.